Hello friends, this is Caleb Suko, and you're listening to the Gospel Today. And today I want to share with you a sermon that I preached this past Sunday at our church here, Odessa International Fellowship, our international church here in Odessa. This was the first time that our church participated in the Lord's Supper together. So I thought it was important to focus on that, really try to explain the basics of it. And I think for me, it was a very good review of some of these central aspects to church life. So I hope that this sermon will be a blessing to you. And if it is, or if you have any questions, please let me know. You can send me a note at Caleb, um, email Caleb at sukofamily.org, or if you go to our website, sukofamily.org slash ask. Again, we thank you for your prayers. We thank you for your support that keep us here serving the Lord in Odessa, Ukraine. I want to start and just share with you something that happened to me recently. I like to exercise, and sometimes I don't have the opportunity to go to the gym, so I exercise at home. When I go to the gym, I often take off my wedding ring. I tie it on my shoe so I don't lose it. And when I'm at home, I take my wedding ring off, and I have this one little spot that I always put it right near our TV that's in a spot that I will see it and is very visible. And so in the evening, about a week ago, I took my wedding ring off because I was doing some exercises at home, and I forgot to put it back on after I exercised. And I went to bed, I got up in the morning, and I forgot to put it back on in the morning. And I went to work, and I was at work, and I started feeling like, oh, my wedding ring is gone. And then I remembered, no, it's at home, it's in that one spot. So I came home that evening, and I went straight for that spot, and it wasn't there. I said, oh no, where's my wedding ring? And so I started asking the family, has anyone seen my ring? Guess what? No. Yes, they saw it. Well, at first I was like, no, no, yes, somebody has seen it. They had looked at it, somebody had touched it. I said, Where's, what did you do with it? We put it back, but it's not there. Well, where is it? And I have to admit, I got a little bit... Angry. Yeah, I didn't want to say angry, but, but I got a little bit angry. 23 years I've been wearing that wedding ring and now it's gone. Where is it? And for a while, I, couldn't, I was in the morning. It was actually it was it was in the morning still and and so I had to go to work and then I spent another day at work without my wedding ring until Christina called and said okay I found your wedding ring and so here it is it's still here after 23 years almost 24 and it does come on on and off I can get it off and on and so thankfully they found it but you know why is this ring so important to me maybe you can answer. Why is it important to me? Do you know, Nicholas? Marriage. Marriage, yes. It represents a promise that I made, a promise that my wife made. It represents 23 years of our marriage, the idea of being faithful to each other, the love that we have to each other. It, it really, in a way, it represents our family. And so, yes, there's a little gold in this. Not a lot of gold. It's not a very, I mean... You can look at it later. Actually, we bought this in Ukraine in 1997. 
okay? And um, it's not, I mean, it's just a very plain ring. So I don't know how much it would be worth. I went and sold it. How, who knows? How much is gold worth? Yeah, I remember I bought mine uh, yeah. with, and it cost 223 grivens. Oh, wow. <laughs> I thought you were going to say dollars. <laughs> okay, 223 grivens. Okay, yeah. But later it was much more expensive. It might be a little bit more expensive now with the price of gold, but that's not why this is such an important thing to me. It is important because it is a symbol that represents my marriage. And as we talk about the Lord's Supper today, in many ways the Lord's Supper is like a wedding ring that God has given to the church. The Lord's Supper, the physical elements of them, are not that special. A little bit of bread... And some juice or wine. These are basic things, very basic things. But the symbols are very important. And so just as the wedding ring is an important reminder of my marriage and the promise that I gave to my wife, so the Lord's Supper is a reminder of Christ and what He has done for us and what it means to be part of the church. God knows that we are forgetful people and we need regular reminders of these vital truths in our life. And so today we're going to look at the Bible and see where the Lord's Supper comes from, what the purpose of the Lord's Supper is, and how it should be conducted. And I hope you'll pay close attention because afterwards we are going to partake in the Lord's Supper. So the first thing we want to talk about is where does it come from? In order to really understand the Lord's Supper, we have to go back to the original. We have to find out where it comes from. And we find this specifically in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 30. So let's look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 30. It says this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So we find this in also Luke, uh, as well as uh, Mark, as well as the Gospels of Luke, it was a very significant event in the life of the apostles. It was significant because this was one of only three times that they would have celebrated the Passover with Jesus. And of course, it was significant because this was the last time they would celebrate it. And it was really the last time that they would be with Jesus. The disciples didn't necessarily know that or understand that at this point, although Jesus had already talked to them about that. But Jesus knew that he was going to die on the cross very shortly after he had this meal with them. And he wanted to convey some important truths to his disciples. And so the first thing that we can note about this passage is that the Lord's Supper comes from the Passover feast. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper during the Passover meal. And the Passover meal was the most significant holiday for the Israelites. And they were instructed to observe it by God in the Old Testament. For the Israelites, the Passover meal was a very intimate meal, a time with family, and remembering 
how God had saved the firstborn when the angel of the Lord passed over before they were taken out of Egypt by God. And in many ways, the Passover meal of the Old Testament served a similar purpose as the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. The Passover meal was a very powerful reminder to the people that this is the God they serve is a God that is able to save them. And at the center of the meal was a lamb that was slaughtered as a substitutionary sacrifice for the firstborn. And those Israelites that listened to God's word, they did what he said, prepared the meal as he said, put, they had to put some of the blood from the lamb on the doorpost as a sign. Those Israelites that did that, their firstborn son was spared that night. And so God instituted the Passover meal as a yearly reminder that would be very important for these people so that they would not lose sight of the fact that they serve a God who can save and that they would never stop worshiping and serving that God. Look at what it says in Exodus chapter 12, verses 26 and 27. This is the instructions about the Passover and how to have the meal. It says, And when your children ask you, What does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. So the response to this was worship, right? It was praise. It was thanksgiving. It was thank you, God, for, for saving our firstborn. It was a very important meal. But so we see that the Lord's Supper comes out of the Passover meal, and it's a very similar picture. And we also see that it comes from Jesus himself. Jesus is the one who institutes this. Think about it. When Jesus sat down to have the Passover meal with his disciples, they would have been contemplating God's ability to save. They would have been looking at this lamb that was sacrificed. And at this point, Jesus takes these pictures, these ideas of God's saving power. And what does he do? Jesus takes the symbol of the Passover meal and now he directs their attention to himself. Now we know earlier that Jesus even was called the Lamb of God, right? referring to his saving ability. But here Jesus says, take and eat, this is my body. And that would seem like a really strange statement, doesn't it? Like, what are you talking about? I mean, it, if anyone else said it, certainly it would be a very strange statement, statement. And it's hard to know exactly how the disciples understood it at that moment because they still didn't fully understand the need for Christ to die on the cross. But we know that Jesus said similar things earlier in his ministry. And the most significant statement that he made was in John chapter 6, where he talked about the bread of life and him being that bread of life and that they needed to partake in, in it. John chapter 6, verses 48 through 56, Jesus has this interaction with a lot of people, with a lot of his disciples and some of the Pharisees there. And he says this in John 6, 48 through 56. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Now Jesus was not speaking literally here about eating his flesh, he was using a pitcher, like in the Old Testament, the pitcher as well, of the manna uh, coming down from heaven. He's saying, that's me. He's saying, God is providing life miraculously. God provided life miraculously through manna in the Old Testament. Now God is providing life for you miraculously through me and through his sacrifice on the cross. Of course, many people did not understand what Jesus was saying here, and it says that some people left him, or many people left him, but the disciples stayed with him, so they must have had some understanding of this idea that Jesus was the bread of life. He was the source of true life, and Jesus uses different illustrations to show that in the New Testament. But Jesus here, he was simply taking these pictures from the Old Testament and showing how he was now the complete fulfillment of them. So all of these events in the Old Testament, they portray God's saving power, whether it's the manna, whether it's the water from the rock, um, the exodus, the, the Passover feast, all of these things, they, they portray God's saving power, but there's one thing they have in common. God saved in the Old Testament, but these acts of saving were temporary acts. What I mean by that is when God saved the firstborn at the Passover in Egypt, he saved them from dying, but eventually they died, right? Eventually they died regular death or just from old age or some other disease. Eventually they died. But now we see something different. When we come to Christ, we find something that is different than all of these pictures in the Old Testament. Christ points to himself and he's saying, listen, I am going to save you not just from a temporary death or difficulty here on earth. I want to give you eternal salvation that will never go away, that will last beyond the grave. And so he is the ultimate fulfillment of these salvation pictures that we have in, these, in the Old Testament. And also, as, as we look at this, we know that this came from Christ. He instituted it. And he says something very important. And we see this in Luke chapter 22, verse 19. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And this is very important. And we'll talk about it a little bit more later. But the practice of the Lord's Supper has always been an act of remembrance. Something that we are to do on a regular basis to keep in mind, to keep us from forgetting important truths that we need to keep at the center of our hearts and at the center of our church life. We need to remember what Christ has done. So we see that it came from the Passover. We see that it came from Jesus. But we also see that this was something that was part of the life of the early church. It comes from early church practice. And so if we look at Acts 2.42... 
It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Where do we see the Lord's Supper there? The breaking of bread, right. The breaking of bread. They were doing what Jesus said, the example that he gave. Acts chapter 2, in fact, is one of the most significant descriptions of life in the early church and how it should be. And so even if we look uh, at verse 6, and we can see in there things like uh, foundational aspects like teaching, the word, fellowship, prayer, sacrificing for each other, unity, and of course, the breaking of the bread. You know, it also says that they met daily in the temple courts. Kind of interesting in verse 46, it says they met daily in the temple courts and they broke bread together in their homes. So we know that this was significant early on in the life of the church because they did it a lot. Now, they couldn't, they didn't continue doing it so often every day because then later there was persecution and the church was spread out and everything. But early on, it was so significant that they were doing it, it seems like, pretty much every day. We can also see it a little bit later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, where Paul goes to visit a church and it says, On the first day of the week, we came together to do what? To break bread. It's the idea. This is fellowship. This is communion. This is the Lord's Supper. This is something that is central to the life of the church. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave them the next day, kept on talking till midnight. I'm not going to talk till midnight tonight. <laughs> so, but, but we are going to break the bread, right? So there's two important... Oh, sorry. Um, so... Um, oh, sorry, I lost my spot there. Um, so what is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? Let's talk about the purpose for a minute. We looked at the historical background of it, uh, but we see that the Lord's Supper reminds us of some vital gospel truths. And the first is that it reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ for us. Luke 22, verse 19, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. This is similar to how he spoke in John chapter 6. This is my body given for, for you. So we see there's two important symbols in the Lord's Supper. The first is the, the bread, and the second is the wine or the cup. And Jesus tells his disciples that the bread represents his body, which would be sacrificed for them in death on the cross. And this is really core to a Christian understanding of, of who Christ is and what he has done for us. Uh, Christ's sacrificial death was a voluntary death, which he did for you and for me. And his death is the only means by which a person can find forgiveness, eternal life, and union with God. Without the death of Christ, the, the cross and the cross, our faith really doesn't mean anything. It's just a bunch of rules and a bunch of traditions. But without belief in this core thing, that those rules and traditions don't really have any significance. They're kind of useless. The death of Christ and then his resurrection is the thing that really gives us hope. That we can also conquer death by putting our faith in Christ. And so as it was for the Israelites, 
in the Old Testament, it's also true for us today, it's important that we be reminded of these truths. And I think there's a difference between the Christian who keeps the truth of Christ's death and his sacrifice at the center of his life and his heart and one that doesn't. Now what happens if we don't continually remind ourselves of important truth like this? And also, what happens if I don't remind myself of my promise to my wife? I could, we could kind of drift apart, couldn't we? That's, that's why I try to keep this ring on, except for when I exercise every once in a while, right? So what happens if, when we lose sight of the death of Christ? First of all, we become short-sighted. We start to focus more on temporary things, things of this earth, and less on eternal things. Secondly, we become ungrateful. We begin to complain about the little problems in our life. We lose our thankfulness, like Stefan was talking about earlier, how he's became so thankful for the little things that God gives him in life. We lose our passion for God, and instead we develop strong passions for things that are not very meaningful and are temporary. We lose our desire for fellowship, our desire to go to church, our desire to be with other people who believe in Christ. We lose our motivation to tell other people about the gospel and the hope that we have. And we usually begin to fight and argue and cause all kinds of dissension around us. That's on the negative side. But when we remind ourselves continually about this and strengthen our faith in the truth of Christ's death for us, what does it do? First of all, it brings us joy and thanksgiving. We say, thank you, God. Thank you that you did that. That is a joyful thing. It allows us to fully worship. When you worship with a thankful heart, with a heart that is full of belief, that is true worship. It motivates us to serve others and to sacrifice for others. It also gives us a passion to share the gospel. It promotes unity within the church and with those around us. And it helps us to love others like Jesus loved others. You know, a few weeks ago, I asked you if your parents had ever said, don't forget where you come from. And so I said, yeah, yeah, my parents told that to me when I left or maybe on a phone call or something. And so as Christians, we also can ask, need to ask ourselves a similar question or tell ourselves a similar thing. Don't forget where your salvation comes from because that's what keeps us centered and keeps us moving in the right direction. We have a great and mighty Savior who is willing, willingly gave his life for us. And to know that truth changes our outlook on life. It humbles us and it gives us hope. Look at what Paul says about this in Romans 5, verses 7 and 8. He says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, Someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, that's an amazing truth. Most likely, none of you have had somebody here on earth that's personally died for you. If you have, that's, that's pretty amazing. But here we have amazing truth that Jesus died for you because he loved you so much. That should change us. So it um, reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ, but it also reminds us of the promise of the new covenant. And that is the, the wine or the cup, the symbol of the new covenant. He says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out 
for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, the new covenant is a miracle of God's grace and his mercy in our lives. But it's hard to appreciate unless we don't understand the old covenant, right? The old covenant was the law that God gave to Moses. 613 laws. They were difficult to follow. No, not just difficult. They were impossible to follow. And when God gave these laws, he entered into a covenant with the people of Israel. And that covenant, the old covenant was a conditional covenant based upon whether or not the people obeyed God's law. So when Moses received these laws, he gave them to Moses and he says, basically, listen, if you follow it, I'll bless you. If you don't follow it, you're going to be cursed. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1. Um, it says, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, then the Lord God will set you high above the nations. And there's different places in the Old Testament where it talk about the blessings of, of God when you fulfill his covenant, when you obey his laws. But then a few verses later, it says in Deuteronomy 28, 15, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all of these curses will come on you and overtake you. And then he goes and he lists all these curses. And we see in the Old Testament that Israelites did well for a little bit, and then they would have a problem. They would fall, and then they would go into captivity, or they would have other problems. And it was this constant problem. The Old Covenant was sort of all or nothing. You either obeyed and you got all the blessings, or you didn't and you ended up being cursed. But, you know, they had a sacrificial system, so then they tried to do the sacrifices to make up for their sins. But in the end, that didn't really work either because those sacrifices really couldn't cleanse them of their sins. In fact, the old covenant was never meant as a means for salvation, but rather as a way for man to see his own sinfulness and his need for forgiveness. God knew all along that we would not be able to keep all of those laws and he wanted to give his grace, and he does give his grace. Paul tells us in Romans 3.20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. We just can't do it. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. We understand. I'm not perfect. I need God's help. And then we humbly come to him. But by contrast, the new covenant that we're talking about here, the covenant with Jesus, is a is a unconditional covenant. It is not based upon what you and I can do. It's based upon what God did through Jesus Christ. It's based upon God's abilities. Look also at Romans 3, 21, 22. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference Jew or Gentile. That's wonderful news, right? Basically, Paul is saying here in Romans, you don't have to follow all the law. In fact, you can't follow all the law. God has made a way to be righteous before him, and that way is through faith in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter. You don't even have to be a Jew. You can be from South Africa or Zimbabwe or Ghana or Nigeria or India or United States or Ukraine. And all you have to do is put your faith in Christ to be included in the new covenant. To be included in the new covenant. I mean, you know, have you ever noticed how people just try to cozy up to people 
that they think are important or famous or powerful or rich? You ever seen that where they're just like, you do it all the time. And they're just trying to get, you know, somebody, somebody is a famous movie star. What do you do? Go and take a picture, not just of them, but of you with them, right? Why do people do that? Yeah, they want to show, hey, look, look, look who's my friend, you know. They want to be prestigious. They want to show that they have, you know, some sort of amazing, powerful, or rich friends. You know, there's nothing, there's no greater privilege than to be part of the new covenant. Because that means that you are a friend of God. You can't have any greater friend than God. The new covenant is a privilege of having a relationship with God and being included in the family of God, having an eternal inheritance and many other privileges that we have in Christ. We see also that the Lord's Supper reminds us of a third thing, and that is it reminds us of the unity we have in the body of Christ. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. Paul says here, It is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ, and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. We all share in one loaf. And Paul talks quite a bit here in chapter 10 and chapter 11 about the unity of the church, that in Christ we have this unity. You know, I remember... Uh, my first trip to Ukraine in 1994. Some of you weren't alive yet, right? Or was anyone born after 1994? No, my kids were. Just some of my kids. Yeah, you were born after 90. After 94, were you born after 94? What? Oh, 2000. Okay. So yeah, so some of you were born after 94, right? Uh, I was the first time in Ukraine in 1994, and I think we have a picture up here. There we go. That's me. On your left, uh, 1994, that's my, and my father. Marcus. What? Marcus. Yeah, yeah, right here. The one without a beard? I, too, I did this one. <laughs> this, this, is my, this is my father. And you know, this is, this is on Paustovskova. This is uh, not so far from here on Paustovskova. Some of you know where Hram Spasieni is. That was before that whole church was there. They, they met in a tent, okay? Uh, I came in 1994, and everything was different. I mean, it couldn't be more different than from where I came from. I remember visiting the church in the village. Uh, go to the next picture, I think it's there. This is the church that we visited. Can you see me? That's a little harder to see. Right here. I remember visiting that church in the village of Makarova, and it looked different, it sounded different, it smelled different. Everything was different. But yet, as I, as I sat there with them, you know, there was a unity. It's like, where did that unity come from? How could a young man from Washington State, United States, have some unity with this group of people in Ukraine, some babushkas and dedushkas and a few other people in 1994? And so, despite those outward differences, you know, we had the same Savior. We had the same belief. We had the same God. And those things united us. And even today, we can look around our, our small church and we can see a lot of differences. We can see differences 
uh, in our clothing, in our skin color, in our languages, in our backgrounds, in some of the things that we like or dislike. But there ought to be unity that brings us together as we all believe in Jesus Christ. And I want to take a, a minute to talk about our church logo here as well. I think it's the next picture, yeah. So our church logo, uh, OIF, uh, which we lovingly call OIF, uh, and we've been talking about some different aspects of it, the, the background that stands for the sin of our world, and the O, which stands for Odessa, and the light of the gospel, and the next one is the I, and the red and the white of the I stand for the blood of Christ and the forgiveness that he offers us. But it also stands for something else. International, right? International. What can unify people from many different countries? Christ can. His forgiveness can. His salvation can. Belief in Him can unite us. And I think that's very important for us to remember. So, three things that it represents. It represents Christ's body, His death on the cross, represents the new covenant, which is by grace and not conditioned upon our ability to obey, but on Christ's ability to obey, and the unity that we have in the church through the one Jesus Christ. Well, and then the final question that we need to answer here is how should it be conducted? And I know that there's a lot of different traditions, and um, there's, there are, are different traditions, um, but there's a few principles that I think that are important. So I'm not going to say that... You know, the exact technical way that it should be conducted or how we're doing it is the only right way. Uh, there are some different traditions about the mechanics of it, but there are some principles that I think that, that we should follow here. We find them in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, starting verse 17. This is Paul giving instructions to the church in Corinth, which, by the way, was a really bad example. I mean, they, were, they did it really poorly, and that's why Paul gave them instructions about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Then he goes off, talks about the divisions that they have. And then verse 20, he says, So then, when you come together, does not the Lord's Supper you eat? For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is why many among you are weak and sick. And a number have fallen asleep. So there's several things that we can notice in here, principles that we need to follow as we do the Lord's Supper. And the first is this, the Lord's Supper should be done in the fellowship of the church. 
We only see this happening in the fellowship of the church, in the community of the church, just as Passover was a meal that was celebrated in the family, in community, so also we see the Lord's Supper is celebrated in community. That's why Paul says, don't just have your private meals here. This is something for the whole church to do together, not something for you to just individually do by yourself. You have your own home. You can eat whatever you want at home and do that on your own. So it should be done in the fellowship of the church. Secondly, we see that the Lord's Supper should be done in the unity of Christ. And this is really important here because the Lord's Supper is a symbol of the body of Christ. It is a symbol of the unity that we have as we believe in Christ. And that spirit of unity is found as we honor each other, as we serve each other, as we love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so if you are not honoring and loving and serving others, especially in the body of Christ, then, you know, it doesn't make sense for you to be taking part in the Lord's Supper because that's hypocritical. And God hates hypocrisy. It is a vile thing to God. And that's why Paul says, examine yourselves. And he says that we should discern. It's kind of interesting how he says, discern the body. Um, He says in verse 28 and 29, examine yourselves before you eat and drink. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. What does he mean by that? It's those people who don't have any regard for others in the body of Christ. It's those people who are shoving themselves forward, trying to get themselves ahead, trying to put down others so that they can get ahead. They're not loving. They're not serving. They're just there for themselves. They're egotistic. They're not discerning the body of Christ. We're not, you're not here by yourself. There are other people around you. I'm not here by myself. We all ought to come together to serve. We all ought to come together with the spirit of Christ, which is a spirit of service and love towards each other. So, and the other problem is, is things like criticism, bitterness towards others, unresolved disputes. Those are all things that shouldn't be in the body of Christ. So if you have any of those things, go to that person, resolve it, repent of it, and then partake in the Lord's Supper, knowing that you have peace with that person and you have peace with God. It should be done in the unity of Christ. The next thing that we can see here is that the Lord's Supper should be done with thanksgiving. Very simple thing. That was a practice of Jesus always, to give thanks to God before he uh, broke the bread and we need to always give with, uh, partake with thanksgiving. And we will be thanking God in front. Uh, we'll be praying and thanking God. But thank Him also individually in your heart. We also see the Lord's Supper should be done by those who profess and believe in Christ. So when we take part in the Lord's Supper, it says that we are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. What does that mean? It means this is what we believe. We're saying that this is important. We believe it. It happened. And, and this is our faith. And so to be done by somebody who doesn't really believe that is also not right. This is something that is reserved for those who have clearly believed. And, and the practice that, uh, that, that we have decided for, for our church too is that this would be something reserved for those who have believed and who have Uh, gone through water baptism as as a believer. 
Uh, and, and we think that's important because the water baptism is a public profession that I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. And so if you, have, if you do believe in Christ and you have gone through water baptism as a public profession of your faith, then you're welcome to join us today. Partaking in the Lord's Supper will not get you into heaven. It doesn't save you. It doesn't make you a member of the church. It doesn't do some, give you some magical powers. But what it does is something very important. It reminds you of the important truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ has died for you. And then the final thing that I think is important as we do this is to know that, is to think that the Lord's Supper should be done with considerable thought and meaning. These symbols are important. They have a meaning. And we need to think about those things. We need to meditate on those things. Uh, Paul says, be careful. Examine yourselves. This is something that is a symbol that ought to have deep meaning in our life. And if we ignore those symbols, then we are ignoring God. We are ignoring what Christ has done for us. We shouldn't thoughtlessly take part in the Lord's Supper. So, what do we need to know about the Lord's Supper? To sum it up, I think we could just say this. The Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus as a powerful symbol to remind all Christians of the price that Christ paid, the new covenant that we are now part of, and the unity that we enjoy in the church. And in order to take part in it, we need to have true faith in Christ. We need to have publicly declared that through water baptism. And we need to do it in a spirit of unity. I mean, those are the basics. And so we're going to do this now. And the way we're going to do it is uh, we're actually going to be, we're going to do it while we're singing a song. Uh, we're going to sing the song. I think we sang it before, right? Nothing but the blood.